physically and bodily, there wasn't much to feel. Everything felt quite numb. But in the moment, it had the, the shape and form and sound and smell of cold water. The ebb and flow of the waters that cover our lands is one of nature's well-known phenomenons, defining our yearly cycles and driving life on Earth. It's what provides food for our wading birds and creates the fertile lands on which we grow. But these cycles are being thrown out of balance with devastating effects, as many people have discovered. This is Waterlands, a series brought to you by the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. I'm Roxy Furman, a zoologist and filmmaker. In this episode, I'm exploring a phenomenon that's not going away anytime soon. Flooding. Daisy Hilliard is an award-winning writer from York. I used to live in a house that was near the city centre in York, a little bit downstream um, on the River Ouse. In the summer, it gets very busy. People like to drink down there. In autumn, I remember when my second daughter was born in November, watching the geese migrating off to wherever they were going to. Every winter, we would get calls from the Environment Agency or the local council. They give pre-recorded messages telling you how high the river's going to rise when there's a threat of floods. The forecast high tide at Richmond is anticipated to be 4.60 metres above ordnance datum at 17.45... So you would get these calls with a, a recorded, well-spoken lady telling you how high the, the river was going to be and, and giving you kind of warnings. And they were very good at predicting the height that the river would come to. As I remember, it was Boxing Day. We were staying at my parents, who live about an hour to the north on a farm, and we had the call from the Environment Agency... We'd been having a few of those calls for a couple of weeks because it had been raining heavily on and off and the water hadn't actually risen that high. So we just thought, let's just leave it. It was, you know, it's a time of year when you just don't really want to suddenly drive out and carry all your furniture upstairs. And it felt like as though it would be unnecessary at the time. So we didn't go. We stayed at my parents and... um, Then the next morning when we woke up, the water was already in our house. So we went there straight away. I went with my dad. I remember it was incredible weather. It was really blazing, blazing sunsets. So, you know, what would it be? About a week away from the shortest day of the year, so was kind of sunset all afternoon and it looked very dramatic this kind of huge expanse of glassy water there's a little park a little further along the river and everybody was standing on the bridge taking pictures of the trees coming out of the water my dad went into the house by then it was up to up to his chest and there's a strong current and this is you know end of december so it was very cold I was concerned for the time that he was out of sight. He got out a load of stuff that was very sweetly, comically useless. He tried to bring out manuscripts and pieces of writing, but some of them were ruined and the others were just notes. So 
he kind of did this very valiant thing that then ended up not not necessarily being of any use. Hannah Cloak is a professor of hydrology at the University of Reading. If you know me well, you know that I just love rivers. She studies water and its movement around the planet, in particular, floods. So I'm really excited whenever I travel. I, I go to you know the major world rivers in, in turn and just kind of look at them and see the way that they sit in the landscape. And it's amazing the similarities actually between the River Amazon and the River Thames. They all have the same types of features and you can see the floodplains. You can see how they sit within the landscape. But they're also, you know, they are beasts. They turn into beasts when they flood. So I have that kind of that dual vision. I can see how, how very beautiful they are, but also how very dangerous they could be. It's always flooded in the UK. We've always seen very big floods come through all parts of the country. But it's how we've dealt with those floods that's changed through time. Much more now we see that we've built on floodplains, so we have people in the way of these very large floods. We have a lot of evidence now that climate change is making most types of floods worse in the UK. Definitely at our coasts, where we're seeing um, storm surges coming through, heavy, heavy rainfalls in the summer, these really intense downpours. We've seen some very bad flooding this year. And also those winter storms, we have a lot of evidence that these are going to become more likely. And, you know, if we're set for more of these types of events, then we need to do something and change the way that we are thinking about flooding. Daisy's family were lucky. Apart from some precious notebooks, they didn't lose anything of real value. They still had their livelihoods and could stay with family while they waited for the waters to recede. Many others in Britain have experienced losing their homes or entire livelihoods through the floods. One problem is that, as with Daisy's house, we often build houses on floodplains. So the river and the floodplain are one thing. Which is to say, we actually build houses in rivers. And part of Hannah's job is flood forecasting. This groundbreaking work earned Hannah an OBE, and it's about helping people to prepare for flooding better. So a lot of my research is setting up big computer models, really, of the Earth system. So looking at the atmosphere, how the rain falls, where it falls, how hard it is. And then, you know, tracing it through the land surface. So is it going to run off over the land surface or is it going to be sucked into the soil or go down to the groundwater? And how long is it going to take to move to our rivers? And then, you know, once it's in the river, where, where's that water going to go? Is it, is it going to go downstream really quickly? Um, is it going to flood onto the floodplain? And we can use uh, a bit of physics, actually quite a lot of physics, uh, to work out where all of these droplets of water are going to be at any one time. And we do this all over the world, but we also do it locally in the UK. And this allows us to kind of look ahead, so, so we can predict an hour, a week, uh, sometimes even a month ahead where, where that water's going to be. The further you look ahead, the more uncertain it's going to be. So we're not quite sure what's going to happen in a month's time. But we have pretty good indication what's going to happen in one hour's time. And it means emergency alerts from the Environment Agency get to those living at risk, like Daisy and her family. They were frequently told about the water levels on the days running up to her house flooding. One of the most effective things that we can do when a very bad flood is happening is get people out of the way. 
Um, so that, that can obviously save lives if we can remove people from the path of this kind of destructive floodwater. Um, but it also can help people prepare for flooding in their homes as well. So if they can make their house more resilient to flooding, um, flood proof their house in some way, when a flood is going to come, then they know what to do, can temporarily move away from their house and then just move back in and, and clean it up as much as possible afterwards. Obviously, it's not as simple as that. And obviously, living with flooding you know, needs a lot of support from a lot of different people. At the time Daisy experienced the flood, she was in the process of writing a book about climate change and the difficulties we have engaging with it as an emergency. She was thinking about this idea of the second body, which is that we humans have two bodies. One, your physical body you live in. The other, your presence everywhere in the world the trail you leave in an era of globalisation and climate change. I was thinking about all these different life forms and things that are happening and being affected by human activity, things that are going on that a human doesn't necessarily experience or sense or perceive in their own body, in their own biography, in their own lives. It was like the second body came to present itself in her own home in the form of a flood. It occurred to me quite late on that I had had an experience of being flooded, which was symptomatic of climate change. So it it made me think about what's happening to the planet and non-human lives, as well as other human lives in other places on the planet. But it also made me realise that there's going to be no single experience that's going to suddenly make that relevant or come home. Part of the point is that that it's not about you. It's not accessible to any particular individual. Over time, humans have become increasingly disconnected from the landscape around them and the way water moves through it. We're no longer aware of how the way we live our lives can in turn affect the way water behaves in the landscapes where we live. When we had people in ancient times living on the Somerset Levels, They knew how to deal with the water and they used boats in the winter to move around. And in the summer it dried out and they did something different with the land. So it was just obvious to them that water was part of their life. Whereas I think now we we don't see that connection uh, to the landscape anymore. We don't feel that water is an important part of of how we live uh, with the land. So I think a lot of the problems that people have is that they haven't seen it flooding across the landscape and so when it does that they think oh this is wrong this is very unusual whereas in fact that's that's just what rivers do and and have done for you know a long long time but one person who is in tune with water and how it can dramatically change a landscape is tim mcgrath he's the mastermind behind the creation of steert marshes a low-lying peninsula where water has once again been allowed to take back control of the landscape. When Stitt Marshes floods on the tide, quite often if you're looking out across the new marshes, you, you won't necessarily see the tide because it sort of creeps its way slowly through the creek network, quite insidiously through that sort of habitat. And if you're there early in the morning at a, an equinoxal tide, one of these high spring tides, the tide coming in is an absolutely magnificent thing to see and the whole of this area gets full of water the feeling of seeing that achieving something that it 
it used to do thousands of years ago, and it's it's tremendous. This sort of magnificence of this flooding is coupled with all the wildlife that's surrounding you is just truly amazing. Steart Marshes is a wild, wet landscape of tidal creeks and pools, created in partnership with the Environment Agency. Now one of the UK's largest wetland reserves. Wetlands are a really important part of our flood arsenal. When we're at the coast, we get this protection from the raging sea. Things like salt marsh take all the energy out of what's going on. They hold the water as well, so that slightly inland, you are protected from that water and from that energy from the sea. And it stops it being eroded away as well, so they have this protection function. But these vital wetlands are disappearing. Over thousands of years, the, the sea level has both risen and fallen with climate change. And when that's happened, when the, the, the general sea level has reduced, we've advanced out into that area and reclaimed it, or, or, or claimed it as land. Working against nature to keep out the water and control these areas for our own use, we've built flood defences, with flood walls, dams or levees. And I often think that at Steart, 2,000 years ago, there were Romano-British people in that place, exactly the same location as us, thinking about, well, how do we manage the tide? What do we do? Do we need to build flood defence embankments in order to protect these properties that are out here? And so it, it, it's happened time and time and time again for, for generations. In Roman times, there's clear evidence of people living on the Stir Peninsula. The tide was kept out with human flood defences. Today, there are a few houses on this low-lying land, but most people are close by on higher ground. And with sea levels rising, these local communities have been at risk. That's why, ten years ago, a groundbreaking plan was put into action to transform this area into what it is today. So I started at uh, the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust back in 2009 and um, almost overnight my whole work was transformed with the opportunity to get involved with this most incredible landscape scale wetland creation down on the Severn Estuary. And so I worked really closely with the Environment Agency and together we worked with uh, the local communities that um, use the area and came up with a scheme that uh, is what it is today, which is this fantastic 500-hectare landscape-scale wetland. It's simple, really. Rather than working against nature, Sturt Marshes works with nature to allow flooding to happen naturally, both from the sea but also from rivers as well. As water comes down the catchment, it's looking for places to flow into. And at Steart Marshes, we have a, an area called Stockland Marsh, where we enable that water to um, go into and, and it gets stored in that place. And that, that is a really good demonstration of how you can use the landscape to store water and get biodiversity benefit out of it and provide a positive flood risk benefit to local people. So otherwise that water will be trying to get into all the ditches, start filling up those ditches, start flooding land. And yet Stockland, the water goes into an area where we can uh, look after it, if you like. 
Today, these hundreds of hectares of salt marsh and freshwater wetlands not only buffer local homes and businesses from river flooding and rising sea levels, but they provide habitat for a rich mix of wetland life, including otters, egrets, owls, waders and wildfowl, helping people and wildlife adapt to climate change. It's such a, an incredible site. It's of such value. It, it doesn't ever leave you. You know, the, the relationships which are formed down there with local people are, are, are long-lasting, which is absolutely amazing and, and fantastic. People expect to be protected from floods, but actually that's an impossible dream, really. Um, and it's much more important that we all come together and we think about preparing for floods and learning to live with the floods so that, you know, you know, as a team of people who, who are going to be experiencing worse flooding in the future, we have to make changes to the way we're living and support those people who are actually really struggling as well, who, who are going to be flooded worse. And that means you know, changing the way we farm sometimes, changing the way we allocate land, certainly changing the way we build our cities. So all of these things together. To find out more about the work that the WWT does to help protect wetlands, habitats and wildlife, go to www.org.uk. Waterlands is an 1860 production for the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. The producer was Eliza Lomas.